All right, episode two with Daniel Myers. Daniel's a family lawyer and he's in my sphere of influence because he's one of the most unique family lawyers that we know. Uh, absolutely, if we were ever going through the divorce process, he's the guy that I'd be wanting to talk to, which is why I invited him to come along on this podcast. So super enlightening conversation, absolutely one to, hang, one to listen to, and I really hope you enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us again for this Paradigm Professional Series. It is my absolute pleasure to have Daniel Myers here with us today. Uh, I've had the opportunity to have known uh, Daniel for, uh, I think, three years we've been working together. Um, I'm just reading off his website here. So Daniel heads up the family law practice. Uh, having grown up in Manchester, he moved to Australia in 2007. Um, he is a passionate family law advocate and actively involved in a number of interesting areas, including the fact that he is a graduate diploma of psychology at the Monash University, and he wishes to not only advance his understanding of the legal profession, but also the science of human behavior, which impacts the legal profession. So the two of them go together very nicely. And that's why I've got Dan here with me today talking to you, because I think he's got some really valuable ideas and insights for people who are going through family relationship changes or who, um, who want to have a conversation with a legal professional. So, Daniel, if I, if, I was a, um, if I was someone watching this podcast and I wanted to learn a little bit more about you, what, that, I gave the intro, but what is it that you actually do? Uh, well, in the most basic terms, I'm a divorce lawyer or family lawyer. Uh, that describes what I do. I suppose the more interesting question is how I do it. The way I say that I practice in family law, which is not... By, new, by no means unique, but it, it is more of a, uh, a modern way of doing things and uh, distinguishes me from more old school methods would be um, to really understand the human side of the problem in a, in a family law case as, as much as the technical side. What I try to do as a lawyer is, is being aware of that. I can actually make uh, a big difference, hopefully in a positive way, to the nature of the case. So... You, what you're saying is like it, anyone can really Google the technical aspects of what you need to do to get divorced. Like it's, it's fairly black and white. You follow the process. It's, it is on the family law website, isn't it? Uh, well, actually, I would say it's actually not black and white at all. I mean, that's, that's part of the challenge as well. On the technical side, it's actually very discretionary. Uh, the, the actual outcomes are um, very subjective. And there was a framework that the law sets out, but uh, each case will be will turn on its own facts to a degree, and ultimately on what a particular judge on a given day decides is the right outcome. Oh. Which, may, which other judges may not necessarily agree with, but doesn't mean to say that one is right and one is wrong. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a different story. But what you're saying in, essentially is correct, which is that it is possible for somebody to Google what the process is what the framework is, not calculate necessarily what the result is, which is where I come in and, and add value in that regard and try to make sense of, um, of, of what, is, what is in writing. But the, the, the broader point I'm making is that what you certainly can't Google to any kind of meaningful way is um, how to uh, navigate the actual process of family law. Daniel, in your view, what makes a good or a bad family lawyer? Uh, it is a good question because I would say that, in essence, it's an understanding far and above just 
knowing the technical side. To some degree, any any person can Google um, what the family law process is and what the legislation says, but it's it, it really comes down to having a, an understanding of the human side of, of the problem, at least as much as the, as the technical side. There's so much um, that of how a client's experience of the, the process unfolds is dictated by various intangible factors that are not set out in the legislation. Um, it's to do with things such as the nature of the, the party's relationship, their trust and communication, their personalities, broader goals and fears. So really to answer your question, it's, it, it's ensuring that the, uh, well, a lawyer who has an, an awareness of this and uses that to their client's advantage can make a big difference. So, for example, if I had, say, two, two parties that were separating and there was, what would you say a, a typical level of animosity would be? Or, uh, Well, I wouldn't say there is a typical thing. It's, it's, sort of, it's all ends of the spectrum. So, so mm-hmm. I meet with clients at one end of the spectrum where they have a very close, amicable relationship. They've already reached an agreement when they come to see me. Um, they just need, or the client who I act for just needs help in finalizing that and that's a very um light touch and i um i really don't have um um too much to do it except process the paperwork and the other end of the scale is where the parties hate each other's guts there's maybe intervention orders in place restricting their communication so they can only speak through lawyers um and there's a huge amount of hostility between them and um you know, they, they literally can't be in the same room. So, and there's everything else in between. So how does a good lawyer add value in both of those scenarios? Uh, well, I'd say probably the overarching feature of that would be just to understand that a lawyer can be a force for good or evil. <laughs> if they, so for instance, if they are dealing with a case where actually the parties have a decent relationship and actually can the, the client can start to make their own decisions and, st- and come up with their own um, agreements or negotiate directly with the other party then the lawyer shouldn't wade in um, with a sledgehammer and try to kind of um, assert who's boss and and uh, try to take away from the 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 valuable nature the valuable rela- relationship that the client already has with their ex partner, um, so it's really just taking a more nuanced approach there. Um, a similar sort of principle applies at the other end of the scale, where actually the 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 parties may have a very rancorous relationship. The lawyer's job there is, and it's an easy trap to fall into, but is to maintain some distance from the conflict, not get too sucked in, be an advocate, a strong advocate for the, for the client, but to maintain a level of objectivity and to make sure that um, when the lawyer acts for a client, they're, they're not um, playing the man and not the ball. Um, mm. and that, so, so that's not a, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's definitely not a soft approach. It's a much more effective approach, especially in the context of a of a court hearing because you, the, the judges are not impressed by point scoring or uh, inflammatory correspondence. Um, what would be an example of that? Say again, sorry? What would be an example of point scoring or un- unnecessary point scoring that a lawyer or a couple had been doing? 
Oh, it's just anything really that is to do with trying to um, promote behaviors that, they, that they've done or minimize behaviors that the other side have done that aren't relevant to the actual issues. Judges only really care about what is actually important to the context of the dispute. So whether it, ultimately, is it going to make a material difference to um, the division of assets or the child's best interests? And so it might be point scoring over in a child, in a relation to children, it could be a very trivial issue about, um, I can't think of an example of something about it. Who, who said what and when um, three years ago, um, time has moved on. It doesn't make any difference at all. So um, yeah, but it, it is very easy to get from a, you know, dealing from a client's perspective, it's a very emotional experience that they're going through. And often they understandably are, are seeking consciously or subconsciously for some form of acknowledgement uh, about their role in a relationship and so on. Um, unfortunately, the legal process can be, is pretty crude. Uh, it's not a, it's not meant to be a therapeutic process. Um, it's meant to just focus in a cold commercial terms on a, the division of assets or what the best interests of children are, which is, can be, it, well, is a very different concept to, um, you know, uh, black and white thinking, good parent versus bad parent, that sort of thing. Uh, okay. So what are some of the biggest myths in family law? Uh, that's another great question. I'd say probably the over the, the theme of the biggest myths in family law is when one person thinks that it's always done in a particular way. And um, um, the family law is actually a very discretionary area. So it's, it's never the case that assets are always divided 50-50, for example, or sometimes I hear that it's always 70-30 in favor of the wife, or the, the children always live with the mother. So it's, it's the, the biggest myth is, is always a, um, where a kind of a label is attached to an outcome that it's always done this way. It's, 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 it's not about that. There's never some predetermined uh, outcome. There is a broad framework that the law sets out for what a fair division of assets should be, known technically as what a just and equitable outcome would be. And I, I can talk to you about that if I you like it's, it's known as the four-step process sure if you just um, what would be the summary of it well in summary um the force the, the first step is to assess what the assets and the liabilities of the parties actually are yeah uh, secondly to assess what their respective financial and non-financial contributions to the relationship were so that's an historical exercise uh thirdly to look at what their uh, respective current and future financial needs and circumstances are. And then fourthly, to um, take a step back and make an overall assessment based on those earlier factors about what a fair settlement is. So, I mean, you can tell from that it, it's the, the job of a judge, if it, if, it, if it goes to court, or the job in any negotiation is to try and balance things such as, um, um, to, to try to compare, for example, um, the initial financial contribution that a party may have brought into a relationship, say 10, 15 years ago when they first got together versus the subsequent parenting um, contributions that 
both of them have made subsequently, for example. So you're not comparing apples with apples, but um, that is why um, it's never possible to have some predetermined outcomes. It's always that balancing exercise to try and come up with something that is considered to be an overall fair outcome. But you know, mm -hmm. the, the, mm -hmm. the concept of fairness is is hugely elastic. So. But if I'm getting, let, let's you know, if, if if I was getting divorced, or if someone one of one of our close clients was or, or friends was getting divorced, it, do do we approach it with the the perspective of well, the, the relationship's ending. I want to get as much of this much out of this as I possibly can, or I mean, surely that would be a common thing that people would be coming to, coming to you asking that that type of question. What I find is that most people have their own in, innate sense of of fairness. It may be completely skewed, oh. <laughs> um, but to to justify to themselves, I don't mean this in a in a critical way. I think it's just the way that humans operate they would say, and I'm sure 99% of the time believe that they don't want any more or any less than is, than is fair to them and to the other party. It just, as I say, what, what that actually looks like on paper may be, may be quite different. So is this, is this you come in and, and is it your role to bridge the gap between those two or is it to actually facilitate? Well, it's, it's a good, it is a good question because it's, the, the, my, my role is, to act in their best interest first and foremost, but okay. acting in their best interest doesn't mean just being a um, a spokesperson there for, for their their wishes if their wishes are not realistic. So my job is to reality test, give confidential advice over what the realistic boundaries are that they can achieve, best worst case most realistic type scenarios, and to help them achieve the best outcome that can possibly be done, um, but also um, making sure that they're aware of um, that sometimes trying to achieve the best outcome that they possibly could on paper may come at a cost, and it may come at a cost of time, money, or their ongoing relationship with their ex-partner, or a combination of all those things. So. Okay, so do you have any tips for people who are going through a separation or, or maybe considering? So, or, or is that a two-part question? If someone's going through a separation, there's a different set of tips you'd have for them versus someone who is considering it. Yeah, I'll deal with the scenario where somebody is considering separating, so they're not, uh, they haven't yet separated, or perhaps they only have just separated and but no decisions have been made yet. So, I'd, I would just say the the that. Um, it's that prevention is better than cure. So it's good to get early advice from a lawyer. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there's obviously, you know, there is the self-interest in, in saying that, or you might think, but, but genuinely um, what I often do, and I'm certainly um, not unique in doing this, is, um, is giving advice to a client in that scenario, just at the very beginning, setting them up on the right pathway, making sure they um, know the boundaries of what, um, they should or shouldn't be doing, helping them to um, preserve a civil and amicable relationship, hopefully, if that exists with their ex-partner, um, and just making sure that they set the tone, the right tone early on. It may be that if um, the, 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 the client uh, at that point often needs time to think about that process, have their own 
direct discussions with the other party. I would, I encourage them to do that. And uh, I sit in the background and often I give, um, or law in that scenario will give often valuable advice to empower their client, but the other party doesn't necessarily know that they even exist until much mm -hmm. later on. Really? Um, yeah. So it's, so yeah. And anyway, to answer your question, I would say, um, nobody has anything to lose by going to a lawyer on a confidential basis at the beginning for an hour, an hour and a half. And, um, just to walk away, they should at the end of that initial consultation have a broad understanding over basically how the the law works, perhaps dis dispel any of the myths that I mentioned, um, before. Um, and hopefully, um, a lawyer who can really add value would give advice, not just about the, um, the, 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 the likely end outcome in practical terms, but also addressing how best the client should go about reaching that agreement in the first place. And, and that's so, so start early. So start early would be one yeah. of your first tips. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. And, and actually, uh, the, the first question I, I often um, ask as well, if a client hasn't yet separated or it is if it is a fresh separation is have he or has he or she considered um relationship counseling do they want the relationship to end is there a prospect um of a reconciliation um even if they have recently separated and there's no going back often there's benefit to go and see a a counselor together in some form uh, just to work through with the benefit of a um, of a therapist, um, mm -hmm. how to manage the, um, the process in the short term. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, should people bother getting married at all? <laughs> uh, why, why would you ask that? Uh, what, what, what's the divorce rates like in, in this country for, let's say 30 to 50 year olds? First time. It, it, it's, it's, is it truly a coin flip or is it actually better than that? Well, for 30 to 50, I, I, the statistic I hear a lot of, it's something like 40-ish percent of marriages end up in, in divorce. But um, That's why I limited it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I'd have to look that up. But um, I mean, the real answer is that, uh, well, the, the technical legal answer is to, should people get married? Well, the only alternative is to live a, a long and... Uh, lonely existence because if you if you're in any form of long-term relationship anything that is over two years and you're living effectively as a husband and wife or or as a same-sex couple in a, in a de facto relationship um you're treated like a married couple the law is exactly the same for all de facto relationships really so as soon as, soon as you pass as soon um, as you pass that threshold it's you are under the eyes of the law married uh well, in I wouldn't put it like that. I'd say, in the eyes of the law, the division of assets um, is the same as if you were married. And um, regardless of the length or status of the relationship, the, the best interest factors of children remains the same as well. But that doesn't mean to say that the the end outcome will necessarily be the same um, in between a de facto between you know de facto couple A and married couple B. That mm. will just turn on the relevant facts um, 
such as you know what the history and the financial relation uh, the contributions in, of the relationship were and so on so have you got any, any tips on how to future proof a marriage in the first place uh, that, that you're asking me <laughs> you're asking that of a divorce lawyer you want a sincere answer about well, I don't, I don't want the cliche. That's what I'm trying to avoid. I, no, I don't no, want to hear no, open no. lines of communication and sure you pick the right person. No, no, no cliche. It's, it's interesting you asked that in the first place. It's like, like turkeys voting for Christmas sort of comes to mind. But, um, <laughs> but no, I would say seriously that um, I don't know if I do have any, any unique insight into that really. I'd say it may, it may not be a very exciting answer, but from my experience, as a lawyer who is 99% of the time dealing with cases that have, uh, have um, relationships that have already ended, um, apart from actually the, 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 the cases where I'm dealing with prenups uh, during intact relationships, that's a different conversation. But um, I would say really my reflecting on that, I'd say that the relate, what causes a relationship breakdown is it's often a lack of trust. Um, between the parties that arises from poor communication or, or a lack of transparency over things such as money often um, um, once um, or, or lack of acknowledgement over um, their, their role in the marriage and once um, some of these threads start to be uh, kind of pulled apart um, these these seeds of doubt and so on, it, it can unwind quite quickly and the whole thing kind of uh, can collapse. So mm. what I would say is um, that I'm, well, I am a big advocate for during strong intact relationships for a couple to go to counseling periodically just as a precautionary measure just to maintain that healthy relationship and, and to stop those seeds of doubt or miscommunication. Sorry, something might be just, just to bring it back up as opposed to we just... Break yeah. Well, that's right. Because in any typical, I mean, this is very cod psychology, I suppose. But if you have um, the honeymoon period of a relationship, it's it's at a high level, uh, and then it, you, as the years unfold and stresses of kids come along and financial stresses and ups and downs, you know, it generally tends to go down. And um, instead of um, um, until there's some trigger event and that by off, often at that point it can be a bit too late so yeah the idea of bringing it kind of back up uh or keeping at it uh, keeping it at uh, that that high sustainable level um through through couples counseling all right daniel i'm gonna fire some some rapid fire questions at you if i may um what in the last five years what new habit or behavior have you picked up that you're using your daily life at the moment that you're getting value from? As you mentioned in the intro, I'm studying psychology. I've been doing that for the last uh, three years or so. Um, uh, the, the, there's Obviously, there's a um, career-related reason for that. There's a huge um, practical use as a family lawyer um, in doing so, just because all the things we've been speaking about, there's so much crossover between human behavior and um, and um, family law separation, but I'd say in, in beyond that, from a personal perspective, it's it's uh, even though it's painful at times to uh, lose weekends by studying in evenings and working late into the evening, and some of the content is quite dry and and so on. It, 
it still gives me fulfillment and purpose and and an end goal then I'm working towards to further my qualifications and so on. Um, so um, that's certainly one thing I'd say been, actually. Daniel, it's been so interesting doing this podcast series, talking about that, that psychological aspect, how most top performers that I speak to, the, 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 the biggest, most difficult part of their role is actually the psychological aspect. So whether you're on my side or you're talking to a client, assisting them through their life insurance application, the insurance application is really straightforward, but actually the, the psychological aspect of, oh my God, if I'm going to die, what the hell happens to my kids? Or what does my life look like if, if I'm permanently disabled is, is a conversation that um, I have to help them through, which, which is interesting because it has nothing to do with the insurance application or in your role, the actual... Yeah separation of assets or split it's but it's it's actually such an important aspect of of that journey of helping people through have you read um victor frankel or or are you familiar with um with who he is um talk to who's victor frankel well he was he's a holocaust survivor um he was a holocaust survivor an austrian an austrian neurologist yes if you just I'm just oh well, there you go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was a Holocaust survivor, and uh, so he devoted his life um, before and certainly after his um, experience in the concentration camp to promoting and understanding uh, meaning. So when I, so, I mean, that just relates to what I was saying about um, how maybe not not despite maybe because my studies is challenging but it gives me this greater sense of purpose and meaning and so when he in his later life um he went on to establish this new school of existential therapy called i think it was called logotherapy uh so it's based on the premise that a man's underlying motive motivator is a is a uh will to meaning even in the most difficult of circumstances so without getting too far into the um you know the um, psychology theories and so on. F- Freud's theory was based mostly on um, the tension between pleasure and pain, and he said that was man's that's man's ultimate driving force is to try and seek out pleasure over pain. Frankel had a similar kind of concept, but he says a man's underlying motivation is towards meaning. That can be from work, yeah, love, caring for another person, and he explained that a person without meaning. Um, as a void in their life, which they then it tends to get filled with hedonistic pleasures, materialism, hatred, boredom, those sorts of things. So, yeah. Um, Do you have a best purchase in the last six months of two hundred dollars or less that has changed your world? Uh, yeah, yes, I've got a good one. Uh, <laughs> I've got a coffee machine first time <laughs> in my life. Can you show it? Because Can you show it? From- <laughs> What sort of coffee machine? Uh, not a very expensive one. It was about two hundred dollars, but just with obviously working from home and spending a lot more time here, um, it's it's become quite a good investment. And uh, yeah, that's right. I still, I mean, I was hesitant about buying one because I actually like having an excuse to get out, just get some fresh air, just go around the corner and and, and get a coffee, which I still do as well. But it's quite nice to have. Um, to have there as well. So yeah. It's, it's, if anyone wanted to, wants to check, if anyone wants to check out the Paradigm Insurance uh, YouTube channel, there is two 
two images or two videos that I made with my team on um, how I make my coffee and I've done an easy mode and a hard mode. Both of them are worth checking out. One, oh, right. one, you one need an expensive coffee machine for that. I've just got everything is less than $40. So everything is less than $40. It's a very simple purchase. I even include the Amazon link in terms of the uh, oh, right. Uh, I will. I will check that out. Is, is there any other? Is there any other uh, last thoughts you'd, you'd have for someone watching this who um, they might have a partner, they might have a friend, they might have a colleague, they themselves might be considering a divorce. Or do you have any last words, or, or, or maybe words of advice for someone who'd who'd be going through that process? Well, probably just to reinforce what I said before: is it can't harm um, to go and just get some one-off advice if necessary from a law at the beginning of the process. The other thing I'd, I'd say is as well, even if a client can, can hopefully for their own sake reach, the, reach an agreement um, them, themselves with, with or without the assistance of a lawyer at the beginning, um, it, it's, it's almost, um, it, it's extremely important that they actually go to see a lawyer um, to help them prepare the documents before any agreement, particularly a financial agreement, not so much with parenting matters, but certainly if, uh, if, uh, if a person has reached an agreement in relation to financial matters before it's finalized, um, it is important to make sure that, uh, that the process is, is actually done properly so that the agreement reflect, reflects what the parties themselves have agreed to and, okay. the, and that it becomes binding and important. So it's not, and it's not totally lopsided or one has been taken advantage of or something well, like par that? Well, partly that, but it's more, it's actually, the, 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 often I do have clients who have reached an, an oral understanding or agreement uh, with their ex-partner and the other party have, have ended up changing their mind and they don't have anything, they, you know, they might have a piece of paper that they um, can rely on, but it, it's not actually binding. And it's, it, it goes back to what I said before, which is prevention is a lot better than cure. And actually, even if the, uh, even if the agreement is finalized through consent orders in the family court, um, there is a huge amount of value that a lawyer can add at that point um, to make sure that the agreement is drafted in the, in the right technical way. Cause mm. you know, that that's um, where, it would be such a shame for all the hard work to be undone if a party that has actually reached an agreement. It is important to make sure it's actually signed, sealed, and delivered in the right way. Okay. Um, could you give me your view on a binding financial agreement in one minute? Well, there's still a certain level of stigma behind um, those types of arrangements. They're becoming increasingly common in, in Australia, probably we have for the last 10, 15, 10, 15 years or so. Um, they're not usually necessary or as relevant in a typical scenario where you have a young couple starting out, uh, neither who have any uh, great assets. I would, it, it, it's not worthwhile doing it in, in those circumstances, but where it can be very valuable to have is, um, say, where it's a second marriage for one or both parties. Uh, later in life, there's a wealth disparity. Uh, one or both parties have assets that they bringing in from their earlier life they want to quarantine. They may have children as well um, from that early relationship um, and they want to ensure that whatever happens in the new relationship that um, their children uh, are protected in, uh, in, future, um, in future years. So you're saying so that, that they do have their place and they, they are held up in court? They're held up in court. They're not easy to provided that they are drafted with appropriate 
care and attention and it, it is a uh, it's not a it's not a straightforward job by any means and it is legally compulsory for both parties to the agreement to seek independent separate legal advice um, so it's not a two-minute job that you can just um, you know draw up a, a quick print up and you know please sign here mm. um, but it can be an extremely valuable investment in time and money can you give me an approximate on how much it would cost to get done uh, it, it really depends on the cases come on yeah. if no, you gave me a range uh, I'd say no less than about five thousand dollars and no more than uh, well no you, you're pushing me for an answer it's difficult to say because it, um, it depends if you're dealing with a um, 50 million dollar asset pool it's going to be a very different conversation and nature of uh, risk that you're protecting against than if you're dealing with a $500,000 asset pool. All right. Daniel, thanks so much for your time. Um, so if people wanted to reach out and connect with you, uh, can they, where can they find you? Uh, well, they can go to my, my website at Rockwell Bates uh, or LinkedIn yeah. or um, happy to speak to, to anybody for a phone call, um, put them in the, in the right direction. Fantastic. All right. Look, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I think some of the highlights for me from, from our conversation here was um, I got to ask you the question about prenups, which is what it was, which is what people tend to, to, to say that I, I feel like that's I feel like that's something that people, people get wrong because they assume they're not, not that valuable. Yeah, well, again, that, that is actually, that's another one of those myths, which is, um, oh, they're not worth the piece of paper they're written on, which is completely incorrect. Okay, look, on that note, thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to our, our next conversation and, and maybe we can uh, get out of the lockdown world and, and um, go from there. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel.